You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Today, we're talking with Jennifer Tillman Havens, who is the executive director at the Center for Jesuit Education at Seattle University. And we want to talk more about that center. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for, or Jen, for joining us today. But we also want to talk about this text, Disrupting Dominance, Privilege, Positioning, and Possibilities for Shared Power. You're, you're actually the author of that in the larger text, Transform, uh, Transformative Leadership in Action. To find out more about your center, talk a little bit about where we are right now uh, in the pandemic in terms of leadership qualities that are essential today and just have an open conversation. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Be here. Talk with you. You're the executive director of the Center for Jesuit Education. And if the listener doesn't know, there are Ignatian-based Jesuit universities all around the world. This is a 500-plus-year-old tradition that you're referring to. Just like to know so much more about that, that sense of discernment as one way of really unlocking, as you mentioned, flaws and preparing us for you know, a deeper sense of awareness of who we are in the world. Could you just tell us more about your work, the center's work, and why that Ignatian impulse is so important today? There's so much to say, but I, I do want to start with a little bit about the story of St. Ignatius because I think it is so relevant for this day. And Michael, you or listeners may not be aware, but on May 20th, we started an Ignatian year, which is a celebration of the 500th anniversary of the injury of St. Ignatius, which launched his spiritual quest for something different in his life without which you and I would not be talking to each other. Our Jesuit universities would not exist. And I love that it's actually an injury that launched this Jesuit project, because I think some of us think of failures, weakness as the end, and it's often the beginning, but we can't see that at the time. So Ignatius was born of privilege in the Basque region of Spain, right in 1491. And he really was born into some minor nobility. And I, I really believe that his journey, once he was injured and had a long recovery in which he had to reflect deeply on the commitments he was making in his life or that he wasn't making in his life, he had these two inspirational texts and one was the life of Christ and one was the life of the saints. And because he had so much time, and this is key because a lot of us don't create space in our lives to have this kind of deeper reflection on who we are and where we're going. But he did have forced space in his life to think about how what he was doing might be akin or very different from someone like Jesus or the saints were doing with their lives. And he, he also noticed this incredible cognitive dissonance and began to realize the privilege with which he was living. And I would say his spiritual journey began with trying to unlearn and undo that privilege. He started by giving away his possessions and his clothing. He himself um, decided for a time to live on the streets, to be in solidarity with people who had nothing. And I think this is instructive for us today, especially those of us who have privilege because of the color of our skin or our educational level or our socioeconomic level, 
there is a kind of unlearning or critical awareness of that privilege that can shift how we see ourselves in the world and allow us to enter into a process of being more authentic, which is what Ignatius did. And he really began to think about himself as a person of service in the world and wanted to figure out how he could make a difference. And he did that for several years, sort of trying to piece this together and recognize eventually that he needed an education in order to have any credibility teaching, but also in order to serve in a better, more effective way. So He went to university and it was at university that he met other young men like him at the time and said to them, you know, what would it be like if we formed a community? If we were companions, as they called themselves in the Lord, and tried to live a life that was countercultural in some way. And this is where the place of community, even from the very beginning of the Jesuits, of the Society of Jesus, was so important. If any of us are going to engage in disruption and countercultural activity, it must be in community. It can start with an individual movement of the heart and in our own discernment, but it always connects with the larger whole. So anyway, so that's really the beginnings of, of the Ignatian story. And then what happened is that they put themselves at the service of the Pope. They became the Society of Jesus formally as a religious order within the Catholic Church. And then a community in Messina, Italy, asked them if they would open schools as a way to sort of raise all boats, right? Can you educate our children? That would really make a difference for our community. And they had no intention of opening schools. And I love this piece of it too, that they actually wanted to go to the Holy Land. They waited for years to go and the boat never came. <laughs> so they could never go to the Holy Land and do this work of converting people. And and I also love that image because what boat is not coming for us now? What boat didn't come because of the pandemic? You yeah. know, can we make something of that? Can we see the possibility in it? Again, it's you think it's the end and it's actually the beginning that comes up again and again in this story of Ignatius and the Jesuits. So they started opening schools and they, they recognized because they were educated and because they were committed to service and to helping souls and spiritual development, they could bring these things together in educational institution. And then more and more people asked them for these schools. And it was a way to educate Jesuits and a way to educate young people. So here we find ourselves 500 years in on Jesuit education with schools across the country and around the world that continue to bring together these values of a deep personal spiritual understanding of myself and my place in the world, an emphasis on service and justice, and a real desire to educate people for critical awareness of the world, that it's an education, not just for an end and of itself, but for leading people towards transformative activity in a world that's so broken. So so it, I think, has a really distinctive place at this moment in our history that I feel hope because we're educating our students in this tradition. What boat didn't arrive for us in this pandemic that the Ignatian tradition helps us see. What boat were we expecting? What didn't we take? And what do we do now in light of the tradition? How do you respond to that? Well, first I want to respond to, right, they were, I'm sure, desolate, deeply disappointed. This was what they thought they wanted. You know, the story doesn't actually provide a lot of detail around that, but they were literally waiting for two years, right? So you can imagine They were intending to go here and there was no way to go there. And I wouldn't want to on any level, not, I want to acknowledge there is so much grief and loss in this time for sure, right? The boat has not come for so many of us. The boat that would lead us to people that we love, to assumptions around safety and health, to into community into kind of, you know, proper education for our children. There are so many things that 
our losses, deep losses in this time. Yeah. And are there opportunities to rethink the way we live? Clearly, I mean, I just find it fascinating that it was as the pandemic was beginning that our racial reckoning also became reignited. Of course, it's been there. <laughs> would never want to discount the incredible work that's been done over many years. But there has been a reigniting of a racial reckoning in our country. And it, it has dovetailed with this pandemic. And part of me wonders, Michael, if it's because those of us who have not experienced racism directly now understand the kind of loss and insecurity that comes with living in an uncertain place. You know, I've heard many of my colleagues of color say the pandemic of racism has been with us for all time, but now we have this added true pandemic on top of the pandemic of racism. And I wonder if there's something in our society in the midst of this pandemic that's been awakened in us in a different way because those of us who've assumed a kind of comfort and privilege no longer can assume it and have entered into a different kind of a solidarity with the people in our society that don't ever have safety and security. I mean, the parents who watch their black and brown sons and daughters leave home every day and wonder if they're going to have an encounter with the police in which their life is taken from them. So I think that's one sort of Yes, the boat didn't come, <laughs> but is there a possibility that arises in this time? I think the other area where I see a possibility arising in this time is around our awareness of how much we actually can stop some activities that are leading to the degradation of our earth. I personally was traveling in airplanes far too much before this pandemic. I haven't done that at all in the past year. And there have been things that I would have attended as national conferences or meetings that have gone very well over Zoom. Do we need to continue to consume fuel at that rate? I'm not sure we do. Um, I, I, as a matter of fact, I know we don't. <laughs> and so I wonder about some of the ways that perhaps we could do a reset, a desperately needed reset around our commitment to the environment because some of the things we're not driving as much, we are not flying as much. Some of these things we've kind of recognized, maybe we could do differently. Maybe I don't need to consume as much fuel or be privy to this environmental degradation as I haven't. Now, who knows? We might just go back to business as usual, but that's another possibility that's arriving as the boat doesn't come. I was speaking recently with Michael Murphy at the Hank Center at Loyola University oh, yeah. of Chicago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we were discussing Laudato Si, the papal encyclical, as you know, but the listener may not know entirely. Papal encyclical that came out in 2015 on our common home. And it calls for a kind of integral ecology, like a rethinking of all of this. And as you were speaking about the boats that didn't arrive or that we were expecting, I just wonder if there's resonance with that as well. This sense that we have an opportunity actually now in midst of grief, people feel tremendous grief. And we have experienced in this world, tremendous loss of life that has been disproportionate and uneven as we know, like to your point about how racism is showing up structurally. Mm -hmm. Is this a time? And do you see the work in your center and the work we're all doing together? It's kind of leading a way to say, you know, the integral ecology of our internal lives, whether we get on the plane, whether we can have that Zoom call instead, just an example, like, this is the moment. And if it is, what would you like to see three to five years out where you would say, okay, as a society, we're starting to take some important steps 
Yeah. I mean, my first response is renewal. (laughs) I think that we need renewal as, as individuals and we need renewal as organizations and as a society and as a nation, as a whole, as a world community around how we can sustain ourselves. And so I think that that is truly, and, and when I say that, I'm aware that that happens at all levels, that many of us need renewal personally. There's a phrase in, in Jesuit education, cura personalis, which is care of the individual, individual care of the person in front of us. So holding space for another person. And I was in a presentation with a colleague this week, and she said, sometimes we forget there's also cura propria, which is caring for the self in the midst of caring for the other. And so I do think, and when I say that, I do not mean the kind of shallow binge watch, care, relax (laughs) sort of culture that we're in. I mean, practices that truly ground us in who we are and renew, truly renew our spirits. I do think that that's a piece in this pandemic that's been a challenge for people is how do I renew and refresh in a flat screen world day after day. And Ignatius spirituality would say that engagement with the senses is so important that seeing ourselves in sacred texts and embracing the world as it is. I mean, so many of us are so focused on this one flat screen right in front of us all day that we forget to sort of enliven our senses to what's around us. So that's a kind of renewal that I think we all need coming out of this pandemic. But I do think our organizations need renewals. And I think sometimes that's going to look ugly and hard. This disruption stuff that we started with, that we started talking about, that I've been writing about, it's not a clean sort of path forward. It's a messy path forward and we're going to get it wrong. And there are going to be people in our organizations who say things that organizations don't want to hear. And in our environment, sometimes that's our students, sometimes it's our faculty and staff, but it's in the interest of digging up, like actually aerating the soil, right? So that new things can grow. And that's a disruptive process. Those worms are happy digging around where they are in the soil, but no, we need to aerate it. We need to dig it up. And then for our society as a whole, I just think, as we talked about earlier, I think we need to look again at who we really are and who we really have been in order to pave a new path forward that is much more equitable and much more aligned with these ideals that we say we stand for. Now, that means that some of us will lose or we think we'll lose. Those of us who have had more privilege, more capability for advancement or safety or health or education may see that, oh, in the name of equality, I'm going to need to step back a bit from these assumptions that I've made about what this country owes me or what I've earned. So again, that's not going to be a clean process or an easy process. But I think on the other side is much more of a fulfillment of that vision of Martin Luther King of the beloved community where we actually come together and see ourselves as brothers and sisters. And it strikes me as so ironic, Michael, in a country that primarily understands itself as Christian, not holy, but that's the majority religion here, that we don't see ourselves as brothers and sisters truly, even though that's so much more aligned with the vision of Jesus. So that's what I would hope for us moving out of this. And, and that, of course, connects to this planet that's making it possible for all of us to be alive. I'm so concerned right now about the droughts in, in all of the West, what which are, are worse than they've been in many years. What concerns you most about that? 
oh, well, <laughs> it's so sort of absurd in some ways that we take for granted clean air, Yeah. right? I mean, literally you and I were in a situation last fall where we couldn't go outside. The air we breathe was so tainted by the decisions that we've made over many, many years to allow our climate to heat up to the to the point where now droughts and fires are sort of becoming the norm instead of yeah. the exception. Yeah, we're going to see that in the Pacific Northwest. You can, it passed as precedent in July and August, we're going to have tremendous fires that turn the sky orange and the, right. the sun, that crimson color. Yeah. I wonder if I could just provide an image and get your response to it that comes to mind as you're speaking. If we're not convinced that we're now standing on barren ground, ground that doesn't have the kind of nitrogen, phosphates, or other things inside of it that are essential for the greening of the world, whether that be our interior lives or the lives around us, somehow this pandemic, maybe it's teaching us something about the barren ground we're on. Like we have to find renewal because if we don't, the peril is in our, not just our future, but in terms of leadership, but our future at all. And perhaps this sense of, of renewal that's required of us means that like the prophets of old standing on the ruins, we have to point to new sources of nourishment or water and say, we have all got to start moving in that direction because there's no alternative because of superficiality or for whatever reasons, the barrenness we're on, the deeper work is going to require disruption and reconfiguration. It will require all of those things you've identified, but also a renewal in a way that we we never imagined would be the case for all of us. Like we're all going to be renewed in different ways through this amidst that cognitive dissonance. Maybe we don't have a choice. Maybe the only way forward is to remove and renew. That's the image I was thinking. Does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. And you know, (laughs) let us remember that the prophets were not well-liked at the time. I mean, prophets are only prophets in retrospect. And I think some of the folks that are calling us to a more full version of ourselves are not always liked either. I think of in our own community, but she's known nationwide, Ijeoma Oluo, who wrote the book, uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. And she said to a white audience in Seattle, primarily white audience, she said, people are asking me all the time, why does everything have to be about race, right? Here she is a prophet. People are saying, God, we're sick of this, right? Why does everything have to be about race? And she said, because if it's not about race, it's about whiteness. That's the assumed perspective. And she doesn't, you know, win a lot of friends that way. (laughs) But is she a prophet in our time? Yes. So I think, I I mean, I, I really appreciate that image of the prophet standing and saying, here's the way and recognizing that many people would say, no, it's not. What are you talking about? And so which side am I on? I think is a question for each of us to be asking at this time. And that takes, again, the soul work of trying to really figure out, you know, where am I coming from and what's important to me and how am I living that or not living it? And then responding and seeing the prophet for the prophet, the prophet's wisdom. So yes, I I really resonate with that image and and the idea that the prophet stands on the rubble, like starts with the destruction and the marginalized and the messiness and does point the way to the, the life-giving stream and the view of the, you know, the fertile ground, but starts at the place where the desolation has happened. And I think that's what those of us, especially who are of privilege, need to do is go to that place. 
it's not fun and not easy, but yeah. So that image really resonated. Well, and then I hear what you're saying to the listener in this, as we're concluding our time is start with our own rubble. You know, part of us know the prophetic voice inside of us, take a good look at the rubble you're standing on or the rubble we refuse to see and do the soulful work. Exactly. And this is where Ignatian spirituality, I think is so important. The rubble isn't the whole of us, right? It is a piece. And that's why compost is such a great metaphor, right? It's dirt, it's messy, it's smelly, but it also leads us to new life. It's good, it's nourishing. So I think seeing the possibility in the rubble and also seeing ourselves as both people who are a mess and are beautiful (laughs) at the same time. And can we hold those together and forgive ourselves, allow God to see us and behold us as we are and see our potential and love us into that. That I think is also a piece of soul work is, is recognizing that God loves us exactly how we are and wants for us to be the fullest version of ourselves at the same time. And so how do we, how do we hold those, you know, real love for ourselves and recognition of our human failings? You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Religious Wisdom and World Affairs at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.